Every haunted place has a story with a dark past. This is Ghost Encounters Podcast. Due to the graphic and violent nature of the things discussed on this episode, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, all you spooky people, to the eighth episode of the first season of Ghost Encounters Podcast. This is a Halloween special. I am paranormal investigator Justin Torok. And I'm Jordan, the group scientist. And with us again today is Jordan's twin sister, Taylor Balterson. Woo! Back again! (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, Eric and Kayla could not make it to this time. Um, But since this is a Halloween special, uh, Jordan had the great idea to talk about Dracula. And I'm not talking about Twilight vampires. I'm not talking about things you've seen in movies. We're talking about the actual story of Vlad the Impaler and the first accounts of actual vampires happening in Europe. I just want to do a quick shout-out for my friend Stacy at work. She gave me this idea. I don't know your new last name, Stacy, but Stacy Eckert gave me the Transylvania books and all this stuff for me to get this idea for us. That's awesome. That was nice of her. <laughs> Thank you, Stacy. Thank you very much, Stacy. Yeah. So let's uh, get into the beginning of Vlad Dracula. I'm sure a lot of people have heard rumors and know that a man named Vlad Dracula actually existed. So let's go back to the beginning and figure out what actually happened and what made him so grotesque. So Vlad Dracula was also known as Vlad Tepes. Tepes means impaler in Romanian. He was given that nickname because it's estimated that he impaled about 20,000 people. And some people might be wondering, what exactly is impaling? Well, impaling is a gruesome form of a torturous death, where a wooden or metal pole is inserted through the body, usually from the rectum, and then the person and the pole is put upright so that the person slides down that pole very slowly. The pole usually exits their chest, neck or mouth and it could take hours or even days for this person to slide down and eventually die. If the pole wasn't sharpened enough, it would pass their organs and they wouldn't die until it exited their body. Wait, they're alive? They're alive when this is happening. Oh, I thought he just did it when they were dead so that he could just show off. He, He probably did do it to some dead bodies to put on display to put fear in the enemies if anyone would see it but the majority of people were alive when this was happening to them. Wow. That's crazy. Pretty sick. Yeah. People always uh, put Vlad with Transylvania. The time Vlad was alive, he was never ruler of Transylvania. What people have to understand is the area that makes up Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Um, Romania and other surrounding places, things were very different back then. There were many battles going on, fights over land, fights over religion. The area that his family ruled was called Wallachia. And Wallachia is in what today is now Transylvania. So Transylvania did exist. Wallachia was its own thing. It's just in an area which is today's Transylvania. Let's figure out how the name Dracula came to be. Back then, we're talking 1400s, surnames were not very common. A lot of higher-ranking people had surnames, but they were usually given. Vlad the Impaler's father was granted the surname Dracul, which means dragon, 
After his introduction into the Order of the Dragon, a Christian military order supported by the Holy Roman Emperor. So that's how the name Dracula actually came to be. Vlad Tepes, or Vlad III, was born in 1431, and his father, Vlad II, was the ruler of Wallachia. Wallachia was in the middle of pretty much a war between Christian Europe and the Muslim lands of the Ottoman Empire. And so Wallachia was kind of flip-flopping back and forth for a while between helping the Hunyadis, which was a family uh, that was fighting for the Christians, and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Vlad II had a relationship with John Hunyadi. And Vlad II fought with John Hunyadi against the Ottomans. John Hunyadi was the leading Hungarian military and political figure in the 15th century. Uh, after this happened, the Ottomans asked Vlad for a diplomatic meeting to see if they can resolve what was going on. And Vlad II brought his two sons, Vlad III and Radu. But this meeting was actually a trap because Vlad II and his sons were actually taken hostage and imprisoned. Vlad II was allowed to leave as long as he left his two sons with the Ottoman Empire. Yes, Vlad II was allowed to leave, but his sons were taken in by the Ottoman Empire, and they were only young teenagers at the time. Yes, it's said that they were imprisoned for some time, but they were actually tutored in science, philosophy, arts, became skilled horsemen and warriors trained by the Ottoman Empire. So they kind of took his sons and trained them to be warriors for their side, pretty much. Yeah. It's also said that this is where kind of Vlad, at a very young age, saw the Ottomans impaling people. And I think this is where, I think this is where Vlad III actually got the idea to do the same thing. While Vlad II's sons were pretty much taken in by the Ottoman Empire, he remained neutral. Uh, but John Hunyadi had a long, long feud and fight against the Ottoman Empire. It is said that Vlad II eventually did fight with John Hunyadi again uh, against the Ottomans. He actually helped take a lot of very important fortresses and uh, led a lot of crusades during that time. Uh, he eventually made peace with the Ottoman Empire in around 1446, but that completely deteriorated his relationship with John Hunyadi. The Hunyadis were very important people mm -hmm. uh, back then, and it was really wasn't a good idea to kind of destroy that relationship that he had with John Hunyadi because the Hunyadi are going to come in again later against uh, Vlad's family. Once John Hunyadi got word that Vlad II did this, John Hunyadi then invaded Wallachia, causing Vlad II to flee, and he was eventually killed in a nearby village, and the older brother, uh, Mercia, was tortured, blinded, and buried alive. Oh my god. So shortly after this, they free Vlad and his brother. His brother, I think, stayed uh, with the Ottomans, eventually converted to their religion. But imagine being a young boy, taken from your family, you're trained to fight, you get wind that your entire family is killed, and you are now essentially free to go. So how would you react? You're going to be furious. Yeah. Right? I'd be pissed. So it makes sense that once Vlad III was freed, his reign of blood initially began. He was bloodthirsty. Vlad III was charged with defending Wallachia from the Ottomans. His 1456 battle was victorious, and he actually beheaded his opponent, Vladislav II, in one-on-one -on -one combat. He was very skilled 
at what he did. It's said that in total, Vlad estimated to have killed about 80,000 people through various means. Yeah. He was a badass warrior. And though Vlad was the ruler of Principality of Wallachia, but there was an internal strife caused by feuding boyars. Boyars are pretty much high-ranking noblemen, and they're kind of like second to a prince. And Vlad knew that his power was going to be challenged. So Vlad invites hundreds of these boyars to a banquet, but this banquet was a trap because he had every single one of them stabbed and impaled. What? Yep. Well, so in order so from the Ottoman <laughs> he, Empire, yeah. he's like, you're going to He come took to this notes directly from the Ottoman yeah. Empire, but he did this so that his power would not be challenged. So anyone that would anyone that would have challenged him being the ruler of Wallachia, he took them out. Years go by and Vlad is the ruler of Wallachia and his reign of blood tears across Europe and everyone knows not to mess with Vlad. Everyone knows that if you come in contact with him, you're probably gonna die and you're probably going to be impaled. I mean, he put bodies on display and because he did that, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of bodies in fields around fortresses on display that enemies would come and then see this and literally flee. They're like, fuck that. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, better words. Yeah. <laughs> and, every, and everyone knew this, but going forward a little bit, here come the Hunyadis again. So Vlad then fights alongside John Hunyadi, and at one point Vlad knew he was facing uh, insurrection, and Vlad saw the aid of Hunyadi's son, Matthias Corvinus. The Hunyadis had a second last name. It was Corvinus. And they called them that because they had a raven on their crest. Wait, why would... Is that what a, is that what a raven's Latin, called? In Latin, I think it's um, Corvus. is raven. Oh, so they, they okay. I didn't know the that. Name All and, right. And made it Latin. Oh, cool. But Corvinus heard of Vlad's violent tactics and his shifting allegiances. I mean, his family had shifted allegiances for a long time. And because of this... Uh, Corvinius was pretty much like, I'm not going to trust you. So he actually had Vlad imprisoned in Corvin Castle. And this happened in around the early 1460s. Uh, Vlad was imprisoned for roughly 12 to 14 years. Uh, it's not said if he spent the entire time in Corvin Castle. There are reports that he may have been transported and taken to other uh, various uh, castles that the uh, Hunyadi family owned, uh, but the bulk of the time was in Corvin Castle, and he didn't have a pleasant time. And the purpose of his imprisonment was to wait for noblemen for there to be an actual court case, but he ended up waiting 12 to 14 years for this, which is insane. Yes. I mean, shortly through his imprisonment, he tried to bribe a guard to get information on what was going on, and the guard ended up spitting in his face. And Vlad grabbed him, pulled him real close to the iron bars. He snarled at him, and he said a couple words to make sure that he knew that he knew, and all the rest of the guards knew to not fuck with Vlad the Serb. Yes. The guard was shook. So <laughs> <laughs> straight shook. <laughs> but because he did this, yeah, it was a it was a move of power. But the guards didn't want anything to do with him. So there'd be days when Vlad would go without food. Imagine being in just a, uh, an enclosed stone room, dirt floors, you have nothing. And you're going days without anything to do, days without food. So he would sit there and he'd listen to the rats. 
crawling in the walls. His stomach growled. He planned out where the rats would be, grabbed them, bite into their flesh, blood dripping down his chin. Once the flesh was gone, he would break their bones and eat every organ inside. And when he was done, he left a nice little neat pile of rat bones outside his cell. Every time he did that, the rat bones were cleaned up. And for a long time, he didn't see food except for the rats. I mean, I'm sure they were like, huh, well, that's one less problem we have to worry about. One less mouth to feed. True. <laughs> right? Yeah. But yeah. this is this probably He's where... Still... Oh, and he's helping with the rat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who needs a cat when you have Vlad Yeah, Dracula? exactly. I have that quote down here. Who needs a cat when you have Vlad in the basement? Uh, but this is just one other account where Vlad III is known to be bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. Of him eating raw flesh and drinking blood. He was next to the torture rooms, so all he would hear all day long were men screaming. He would hear the stretching machine stretch and stretch and stretch until bones popped out of their socket. He would hear the heavy clanking of the iron boots walking down the hallway. You know what iron boots are? They're iron boots with spikes on the bottom. So with every step you take, the spikes move further and further into your foot. Yeah, yeah. These people were not pleasant, and they had some torturous uh, methods. So these hearing these screams all day long, hearing this torture, kind of fucked with them. And I think yeah. once he was eventually released, he became a little more insane. Yeah. There is a report that after one battle, he sat with his warriors on the battlefield, looking over the dead bodies, many of which were impaled, probably men still screaming as the poles entered their body. And it said that he was dipping bread in their blood. Oh, really? Yeah, oh my I gosh. That's insane. About that. He seems like somebody that really cares about like his reputation. Like He wanted 100%. a monster-like reputation. And he wanted people to fear him. Well, they made him into a monster. Yeah. Who knows if he would have been like this, if he would have just been allowed yeah. to be with his family. But it was a trap, and he got yep. taken in. So they created a monster. Before Vlad was imprisoned, there's one really cool story that I wanted to talk about. And it happened in around 1459. Uh, the Ottoman Turks were never far from Vlad's thoughts. He hated them. Diplomatic envoys were invited uh, by Vlad. And when they came, they refused to take their hats off, citing religious custom. And Vlad commended them on their religious devotion. And so Vlad ensured that their hats would forever remain on their heads by having their hats nailed to their skulls. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, so no wonder, like, this reputation of Vlad's yeah. Yeah. got spread across Europe. So is his reputation the reason why they, like, called him? Like, how did we get to the part, the, how did we get to the part where he's Dracula and a vampire? Well, it's interesting because... There, when Vlad was around, there's no mention of him being a vampire. No, I mean, not he's all. not. That's why I'm confused. <laughs> so I, I think it's because he was so grotesque and so bloodthirsty. Because of this, Vlad the Third, Vlad Dracul, was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where people got the idea that Vlad the Third was actually a vampire. It's it's almost like they look at Vlad. And it's hard to believe that he, he he's so dark and so 
gruesome that it's hard to believe he's human. Right. He's more linked towards something of a demon, like a demonic presence rather than being right. a monster. And it's, yeah, it's, he's more of a monster, literally. And it's all because of what happened to him in his life. Yeah. They created a monster. Yeah. Imagine if he ever tried to, like, conquer an area. Imagine if, like, he actually was, like the Pope or something, and he was the one that was leading the, the Holy Roman Empire across Europe. Imagine the chaos. It would have yeah. been insane. It would, <laughs> it would have been, have been different. Insane. It would have been a different Europe. He just wanted to... Or if he stayed with the Ottomans. Who right. even knows if Christianity would be the same like it is today? Correct. Like, the Ottomans, like, Muslim would have, Muslim would have been, like, everywhere. Everywhere. Instead of Christianity. Instead of Christianity. But he just wanted to rule Wallachia. He just wanted to be have his own territory and be his own thing. But he kept being pulled in different directions, and sucks. But speaking of the Pope, the Pope at the time was Pope Pius II, and he was actually very impressed with Vlad's skills and battles. Vlad was released from Corvin Castle around 1475-ish. Dates and stuff are kind of off by a couple of years because records weren't really well kept back then. Um, but the only reason that he was freed was because he had to agree to fight for Corvinius against the Ottomans. And Jordan, I think you found some interesting facts about Corvin Castle. Yeah, actually, it's where they filmed that movie, The Nun. I mean, I've never seen it, so <laughs> I wouldn't be able to tell you that, but it's I read pretty, that. It's pretty freaky. Yeah. Well, I know she's scary looking. Yeah. Kind of ugly. <laughs> but the actress is really pretty. Like, if you look up the regular actress, yeah, she she's is. normal looking. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, it's said that Corvin Castle is one of the most haunted places in the world. Yeah, apparently it just like looked creepy. I know that Corvin Castle had like upgrades done to it, mm -hmm. but it used to be apparently like a really like gothic, dark, doom and gloom place. Yeah, it had a, it had a lot of gothic style architecture. Too. Yeah, and I know there were so there was some talk that like um, in the novel Dracula that he based it more around Corvin Castle than. Vlad's Castle, which I don't remember the name, Bran? So, Bran Castle. Yeah, Brand let's, let's Castle. talk about that for a second. Bran Castle is always said as Dracula's castle. It's in Transylvania. But there, after all this research and after studying Dracula for many years, there are no ties at all with Vlad III and Bran Castle. Yeah. None. None. There, There is stuff floating around that when he was being transported to other prisons that he may have been imprisoned in Bran Castle for a couple months. Other than that, that's it. Um, so it's, people speculate that Bran Castle was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, think, where this whole tie-in comes yeah. in with Vlad the Third. There's just so much information and so much, like, different spins on everything. It's kind of hard to figure out how to put it in a timeline, how to figure out years and Yeah, because the records were yeah, records were not well kept back then. So you read one article and it says this year, and you read another article yeah, and it's like exactly. three years off, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's it's hard to kinda everything's always all over the place. You kinda gotta read everything and then piece it together in a nice timeline story. And even though he was pretty badass, he eventually came to an end. Uh, I think it was around 1476. Um, he marched another battle against the Ottomans, but they were ambushed, and Vlad was eventually killed and beheaded. His body was cut up too, but they only sent his head to to the Ottoman Sultan. That's right. Probably cut him up for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that ghost walking around 
Corvin Castle. I wouldn't want to meet him. Uh-uh. He's probably still eating rats. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story of Vlad Dracul, or Vlad Tepes, or Vlad the Third, all of his names. But there's no mentions of the word vampire or anything like it in that time. I think we, ha- we have to jump forward to, like, the late 1600s, early 1700s, when we start hearing about stories of vampires or words that mean vampire. If we stay in the area of Transylvania, Romania, there's a word that's actually still used today, stragoi. Stragoi is pretty much a word for vampire. It's someone risen from the grave. They have abilities to transform into other animals. They can become invisible, and they gain fertility by drinking the blood of their victims. I believe the first account of Strogoi was in the late 1600s. Giorgio Grando, 1579-1656, died due to an illness. 16 years after his death, he would arise from his grave at night and terrorize his local village. He would knock on the door of a house, and someone living in that house would eventually die a few days later. He also appeared to terrorize his widowed wife in her bedroom and was described as smiling and gasping for air as he looked at her through the window and then eventually sexually assaulted her. Uh, Father Giorgio, um, the one who helped bury him, he held a cross to his face and survived the account because of this. Uh, The villagers then gathered and dug up his coffin where they found that his body was almost perfectly preserved. His hair grew, his fingernails grew, and he had a smile on his face. Uh, So one villager took a saw and removed his head. It's said that when the saw began to cut the flesh of his neck, the vampire screamed as blood spewed from the cut, and peace was then restored to the village. And then there's mention of Stragoi as early as 2003. The village of Maritino de Sus, Romania. Uh, there was a man named Petra Toma, age 76. He died, and then a year later, people of the village became sick and had nightmares of Peter. Uh, the villagers then dug up his body, found, again, that his hair, his fingernails grew, and that his body was pretty well preserved. I mean, it was only a year, so of course the body's not going to be pretty decomposed at that point. Um, So what they did was they actually cut the heart out of his chest, grilled it, prepared a potion from the ashes, and everyone who was sick drank that potion, and apparently they were healed. And the villagers that did this to this man's body were never charged. And this was as early as 2003. Yeah. sounds very As a scientist, do you know how long after death your hair and fingernails and stuff continue to grow? Well, it's actually a myth. They do not grow. They don't. They do not grow. No. Um, your body loses moisture as you, like after you die. So it causes, it makes the effect that your nails are growing and that your hair grew. So things are shrinking. Yes, but the it's skin not. skin and everything shrinking, so yeah. and the nails and hair is not actually growing. Nope, it's a myth. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, I did not know that. Um, but I think you actually found an early account of vampires as well, correct? Yes. So it's a lot like yours. Um, it's in a village in Serbia. Before we start that, though, is there, like, a reason, like, do they have, like, maybe talking out of my ass here, but that permafrost or something? Like, is their ground really cold, like, underground super cold compared to, like, here or anywhere else? Do you know? Off the top of my head, I really don't know. I think there is, because I I remember when I was doing research, there was mention of that. 
because in the story that I'm about to talk about, they talk about how they like pull these people up from the ground and how they don't look like they decomposed at all and blah blah blah. And it's it makes me think that maybe due to their location or something, it prevents the like decomposition of the body or Probably something like it that. Down slows it down. Yeah, since I mean, granted, you're under you're how far under the earth. I mean, obviously going to be a little chilly down there, but I didn't know if like that played an effect because I don't know crap about geography and I don't I don't even know where it is on the map, so That's okay, but I, when, when I was uh, doing some research, there was mention of that so... Oh, cool Yeah, I just didn't know if Some locations that have um, very cold permafrost the body stay more well preserved Cool. Yeah, I didn't know. I don't know. I hear the word permafrost, but I don't really know, like, the details of that stuff. Basically, <laughs> basically it's like a layer of ice in a very top layer of the ground. Oh, okay. And everything everything around it stays from because it's so cold. Yeah, and it snows there a lot. They get, on average, 30 inches of, of snow or precipitation in the winter months. Cool. The, the, the average temperature in winter months months is an average maximum of 36 degrees wow. so oh, their wow. whole winter season that they have is the ground well, that can't that'll definitely delay yeah. any sort of decomposition of body, body. Yeah. interesting but anyway I um before I got the idea from my friend from work about this podcast I was listening to a different podcast about a haunted place called Kisiljevo and um, that's a village, it's a small village in Serbia. Um, it was famous in the early 1700s for a rumor about Peter Bogoyevich. Um, he was somebody that they also thought was a vampire, really close to what Justin was talking about. What's up with the name Peter? I don't know. If your name's Peter, you're a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> don't trust a Peter. <laughs> don't oh. trust a Peter. That's what she oh. said. <laughs> but anyway. Um, this is one of the, like, earliest and most well-documented cases of, like, vampire hysteria, and it influenced the way we see and think about vampires today. It influenced Dracula and all that stuff. Um, so after he died, there was a series of sudden deaths, just like what Justin said, where within 24 hours of each other, people were dying right after seeing him in their dreams or hallucinating whatever it will be and it started causing like mass hysteria in the village so people were starting to panic they didn't know who was going to die next so um actually his wife saw him like the night after he died and he was actually this i don't know why they talked about this but he was looking for a shoe he was asking her like where his shoes were or something weird and um yeah, she wound up moving out of the village right away. I think probably because she was scared to find out that her husband that just passed away was right. being called a vampire. So I would probably flee too. <laughs> Wouldn't want somebody to hang me or anything. Um, but then there were other legends about him returning home to his son. And his son refused him to come in because he knew that he was dead and everything. And... Um, Apparently, it pissed Bogoyevich off, and he killed his own son Jeez. by drinking his blood. Oh. Yeah, so that was another legend that I read up on about the same incident. 
Um, but they were so desperate to get the, like, people, they were so desperate to get these deaths to stop, these sudden deaths to stop, that they, um, they tried to get permission from some, I don't remember what it, exactly, who exactly, but they tried to get permission from somebody to come and help them, and I want to say it was like the Austrians or something, to come help them with this vampire problem, and the leader of like the village, I don't remember his name, but he wanted to wait, but then they were panicking, like these people were going nuts, right. and basically they were going to do it with or without him at that point, and they made him pull the body up to see if he's in there, to make sure he was uh, <laughs> alright, um, but then when they pulled him up, they wanted to make sure that they checked for signs of vampirism, and they found out that he was not really decomposed, like we said, mm -hmm. hair longer, um, he looked like, it looked like there was like fresh skin, they keep referring to it as like newly shed skin, or oh, something like that, okay. um, so basically he looked prim and proper, like he was still living right. in the grave, um, and I guess from that they staked him. And it's funny because, like, I always thought, like, after reading about this place, um, I always thought that they just, like, had to stake them and run away and they would burn and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they really staked them while they were in their, like, coffins yeah. to keep them in place. Like, I didn't think of it in that way. Oh, to keep them in place? They, they stake them to keep them in place so they don't raise from the dead. Interesting. Which I didn't know that. So I thought that that was a little cool fun fact when I was reading. But, um, yeah, so supposedly this led to the vampire craze of the 18th century in Germany, France, and England. Um, yeah, so they all kind of followed each other. And Yeah, the, there was a vampire craze for a while, and people feared it severely. Mm -hmm. I mean, people even put... You can look at old graves in Europe, and you can see iron bars over graves. Yeah. They feared it so much. Yeah, and they, they got into this whole thing where the corpses were beheaded and burned right away. Like, most of the time, they didn't even want to keep them. Right. And they also, which I thought was really cool, um, which is what we should all do, not trash the cemeteries. Um, they keep their, their like, cemeteries, whatever you want to call it, graveyards, like, in pristine condition more than they care about their own houses. Like, they respect the dead so much over there right. because of all this craze. I thought that was really cool. Because, yeah. you know, sometimes you think about, like, cemeteries and sometimes you walk through them and see garbage or people hanging out there at night and whatever, being stupid. Right. Definitely didn't do any of that back then. Yeah, no. You'd probably get shot, or <laughs> I don't even think they had guns. You just did. You probably, yeah, something bad would happen to you. Right. <laughs> Definitely, they'd, they'd be mad. You'd get charged with something. That's interesting. The story is kind of, kind of similar. Yeah, it's, so it's, similar. It's very, it's very weird that we're seeing a similarity in different places um, throughout roughly somewhat around the same time. Yeah. Um, they also had a lot of traditions that they still follow now. Okay. Um, so it's like almost mandatory to watch and make sure that the corpse is okay for 24 hours. So they keep it in the house that it died, where the person died. Ooh. So they keep the person in there for 24 hours before it can be buried. The person, I don't want to call it it, I feel bad, but um, they also have a candle that they keep on, like keep lit. Um, from the time of death until actually they put them in the ground. And then there, this one was weird to me. They put gunpowder in the casket to repel evil. That's interesting. Like set it off. Oh. Wouldn't that cause a fire? 
Because I read Gunpowder Set Off in Casket to Repel Evil. That's interesting. Yeah, I've never heard of that one before, so that one's interesting. And obviously they do the incense that they burn while they're going through the whole process. Right. And that's all I really have about that place. <laughs> but apparently it's still, they still follow all this stuff today. Oh, they do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah in various it's parts very... of Europe they still follow mm-hmm. this to the T. They still fear vampires and Strahoi. I mean, I don't so blame much. them from being either. like... Traumatized. It's crazy that these reports actually happened. Like this yeah. actually happened. It's pretty. It's pretty crazy. Uh, we're gonna take a little break, and we'll be right back. Ghost Encounters podcast is sponsored by the Eric Ledbetter team with Iron Valley Real Estate. Contact the Eric Ledbetter team for all your real estate needs. Visit theericledbetterteam.com. Also sponsored by Phoenix Fire Media. Bring the heat to your competition with expert marketing, photography, and video production. Visit phoenixfiremedia.com. If you are enjoying the Ghost Encounters podcast, hit subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ghost Encounters PA. That's at Ghost Encounters PA. To watch the Ghost Encounters show, visit ghost-encounters.com. <laughs> So you mentioned some traditions that they did. So the people that believe in Stragoi have some traditions of their own. Oh, cool. Uh, and there's actually written down of how someone becomes a Stragoi. You're either the seventh child of the same sex in a family, or you live a life of sin, you die before marriage, you die by execution, you die by suicide, or from the curse of a witch. Ooh. That's how you can become a Strogoi. Wow. And there are ways to prevent Strogoi. Uh, you exhume the Strogoi, pretty much just dig up the body. Uh, you remove the heart and cut it in two. You can drive a nail into its forehead. You can place a clove of garlic under their tongue. Or you can place them face down, making sure that they never wake up. And if they do, they go right to the afterlife. Oh. So this is actually the first mention where garlic comes into play. Yeah. Because it's said, you know, in stories today, vampires, yeah. garlic repel vampires. You know, so this is kind of the first uh, notion of garlic with vampires. And I know there's actually even a body that you can see of a skeleton with a stake um, driven into its either chest or neck, and it has, like, vampire-like teeth. I, I know I watched an episode of something. Do you remember where that was? Is in Bulgaria. Bulgaria. And I think uh, it was one of Josh Gates' uh, episodes, right? Yeah, and it was it this the stake that they used was like a part of the plow. Oh, interesting. So they actually like staked him in the ish. Right. It was like the neck is yeah. chest kind yeah, of it, area. Yeah, because They skeleton. believed it was a vampire. Yeah. And they did rituals so that it wouldn't rise up. Yeah. Um I think it was Josh Gates, they were actually able to take a sample and they found out that this skeleton actually had a disease. I forget what the disease is called. I know they call it, they nickname it the vampire disease. I think Jordan can shed a little yeah, bit of light on this. It's called Porphyria. Porphyria. I feel like that's how it's, I hope that that's how it's pronounced, Porphyria. Um, what does it do? Well, there's two types. So when I was trying to do some research on it, um, there's acute, which affects your nervous system, which we're not going to be talking about, by the way and cutaneous, which affects your skin. So the people that have this 
like genetic disease. Um, it, wait, let me take that out. I don't know if it's genetic. It may be genetic. So people that have this disease basically can't go out in the sun. Like if so they're they, sent to the sunlight. Yes. If oh, they so go out in the sun, they could blister. It could cause permanent damage to them. And it just makes them really, really red and painful in the face and arms. And wow. Wherever is exposed to sun. Yeah. Um, Does it do anything else? So I have a little background on it. The disease disrupts the process uh, that produces heme in your blood cells. I'm not sure how much you know. Well, heme is a central component of hemoglobin in your blood. So um, red blood cells contain hemoglobin to allow transport of oxygen through the body, which you probably know. But when the heme gets disrupted, it had, there's actually a name for that, and it's called porphyrins. That could be wrong, could be wrong. But it correlates to what the disease is called. Um, what's interesting about this disease, especially, well, I have the full name of the disease. I like to just call it PCT for short, which is Porphyria Cutanea Tardae. Um, so that's what people get when they have the cutaneous like part of this disease um, it's characterized like I said by extreme sensitivity to sunlight exposure to sunlight PCT causes really bad redness um, swelling which they used to say in these old stories that we're talking about that they refer to them as like looking almost like a mosquito that just engorged on blood mm. so that would be a good that makes sense. first off it's really red second off it's bloated so that's uh, another Kind of scary thing. I feel like people would definitely look at people and be like, "You're a vampire," just from that. You just suck blood. Yeah, like it's freshly you freshly drank. So um, it also causes the skin to become really fragile and change color. What's weird to me is it causes excessive hair growth in the affected areas. Interesting. Yeah, um, and it causes your urine to be red or brown. So back in the day, imagine if you're peeing blood. People are probably like, "You're out there." Drinking blood. Drinking blood. Yeah. So the only treatment for that is to reduce sunlight exposure and reducing iron in the body, which is to draw blood, get your blood drawn. Right. Um, there is medication for it. I'm not really sure how in-depth they go with medication. Um, and people, obviously, that have this disease need to take a lot of vitamin D because they're not in the sun at all. Right. Can't be in the sun at all. So some connections with the disease and vampire folklore was that before modern treatments for the disease, some physicians recommended patients to actually drink blood to compensate for the defective red blood cells. Um, and they claim that they didn't give them human blood, they gave them animal blood. That's true. He said, she said. <laughs> um, and, you know, we said that already, they can't go out during the day. Um, they match, like people with PCT match vampires because... When vampires go out in the sun, they're in pain and agony and right. all that stuff, which so matches. Here we, here we have the connection yep. with the whole sunlight yep. for vampires. So um, imagine being like centuries ago, sitting there with this disease, and you have no idea what's going on with you, and people are pointing their finger at you saying you're a vampire. Witchcraft. Right, so yeah. your skin is pretty much white. You're not going out in the sun. Yep. If you do go out in the sun, it burns, you get blisters. Uh, your skin is becoming bloated and red, like yep. almost like a mosquito when taking the blood. You're peeing red, which people back then thought then 
You are drinking, drinking blood. blood. Yep. What else does the disease do? There's a correlation with um, the fangs and garlic too between folklore and the disease. So it says that repeated um, attacks, because you could get like flare-ups of this disease, um, can result in facial disfigurement. Oh. And it causes the gums to recede, so it makes your teeth look pointy and fang-like. So that makes a lot of sense. Yes. And also, as for garlic, garlic contains a high amount of sulfur, which can trigger an attack for the people that have acute forms of the disease. So garlic contains some a component that bothers so them. So pretty much this one disease encompasses everything that we know uh, about vampires. Yep, exactly. And the myths about vampires. That's crazy. Yeah. I wonder if there was... It doesn't sound like it sounds like this disease. Would you say is probably more genetic? It's I, not something that's contracted. I yeah, I want to say it's genetic. I did read that they don't know if it's autosomal recessive or if it's like Y-linked. They don't know. What does that mean? So those, depending on how it goes down, your pedigree, like in your history, mm-hmm. if it's depending on which kind of linkage it has, it could be from your mom's side or your dad's side. Okay. Autosomal. It dominant or recessive it, it all depends on the genes so I wonder if there was a time uh, I wonder if there was a period in time where it was more common for people to have this and that's why there was such a huge fear of vampires yeah like you know because if one person has this hundreds of people from miles away are not going to hear about this so I wonder if there was just something yeah. going on in that time that caused a number of people to have this. Mm-hmm. And science was really limited back then. So it was. <laughs> then you didn't get you didn't get gene linkage until you know. <laughs> like, so he's so soon. Like that was just recent. If you think about it, if we're going back that far, it's technically recent since genes. Yeah. Have so been... so it makes sense. A lot of times when people had diseases, people didn't know what they were, and you immediately just and it scares you. It scares you. Yeah. You immediately just link it to evil. Mm-hmm. Automatically, that's what people did. I mean, we kind of we kind of talked about that in the previous episode with um, the Salem witch trials, but it, it's just crazy how diseases and stuff were linked to now common day folklore. Mm-hmm. But going back, so we have Vlad III, nicknamed Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler, has the surname Dracul, um, which means dragon. He is this bloody, gruesome, bloodthirsty warrior. And we have we have reports of Strogoi and other people rising from the dead in various parts of the countries. And then we have people with this disease with sensitivity to light and garlic and, and are peeing blood. And it's no yeah. wonder that eventually there is this correlation or this eventually there's this fear of vampires across Europe. And it's pretty interesting because it's not too long after that Bram Stoker's Dracula came out, because that came out in what year? 1897. So Vlad was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> and Vlad was around in the 14-1500s. Then we have reports of those vampires in Strigoi in 16-1700s. And only 100 or 200 years later, this novel comes out yeah. about a vampire named Dracula. And that novel sparked inspiration for hundreds and thousands of other books and stories and TV shows and movies. It's kind of an icon for evil. It's an icon for Halloween, which is why we want to do this episode um, published it out on Halloween. 
very interesting mm -hmm. how all this stuff kind of comes together when you start digging into all this research to figure out where did vampires come from and how did this come about. Those are all the stories that we can find of how vampires came to be. And there's so many modifications to it, like so many different authors have interpreted their own and made their own vampires and stuff like that. Like, right. like I was doing research on Verbena, which in the Vampire Diaries they call it Vervain. Okay. Which is, I don't know if it's a genus or what it is, but I like that they had, they included that because it is used in Bulgaria. To what, prevent or stop vampires? Yep, to keep them in their grave. So they put the plant or the flower, I don't know, around the grave so okay. that they can't come out. And apparently they have to be really careful and only certain people go out and actually get it. Like they actually call some sort of doctor or whatever you want to call it and they go out and they have to be careful because they're actually poisonous in the roots, oh, especially. Wow. So you have to be really, really, really careful when you're going to pick it. That's crazy. Yeah. Don't go looking for vein unless you know what you're looking for. Exactly. Don't do it. <laughs> then we have the typical, you know, Count Dracula high in his castle, wears a cape, and is all white and creepy. One of the OGs, Nosferatu. Yeah, that's actually a pretty cool story. I love Nosferatu. I love it so much. I watched that in a Chenzi's class in high school. Shout out to Mr. Chenzi. Shout out. Listening. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, this is the best movie ever. It's funny because they, like, it's so old school, and they had to use, like, different lenses for like night and day because they couldn't they couldn't, they film, couldn't at film at night so, so they, they would use different colors yeah. to represent day and night yeah and it's a silent film for those of you who have never watched it but it's kind of the first it's the first film that ever came to be that had to do with dracula or vampires and i think i remember you were telling me that the guy who plays nosferatu didn't he stay in character the rest of his life yeah he yeah, he kind of like adapted the character, like, and he stayed, he almost stayed creepy. Like, he couldn't pull himself out of the character that he played. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, he kept his long, creepy yep. nails and kept fingers his... and his pale skin and shaved head and mm -hmm. teeth and stuff. Like, he just stayed in character. Yeah, he was like... a very creepy vampire. <laughs> yeah, it, it is very creepy. If you Which haven't like... seen it, it's, it's actually pretty creepy. For a silent film, it's yeah. kind of, they use different techniques to make you scared. I like how they do that. I like the old school yeah. vampire stuff. I'm not into Edward Cullen with his little sweat diamond bead face. <laughs> I like the old school stuff. Like, and Dracula Untold. That's such a good movie. You know, I really appreciate the research they put into Dracula Untold. Yes. Um, with, with the Ottomans and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And they want to take his sons even because he yeah. was taken, you know, his he was a son from his father and he was taken... Um, it's very cool that they kind of and the creepy dude up in. in the cave. I don't know who they were trying to portray him as, but that was amazing. Maybe yeah. he's Peter Bogoyevich. Yeah, somebody that was <laughs> probably stuck yeah. up there. Peter, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Peter, Peter in the cave. Yeah, I think Dracula Untold is my favorite adaptation of. Absolutely, uh, I have to agree. I wish they made a second one. <laughs> <laughs> I know it would have been so good. Well, that's all the time we have for today, Taylor. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. I'm sure we'll see you again. Hopefully, everyone stay spooky. Stay in the shadows. And happy, happy Halloween! Halloween.